happy to be able to be here in this pulpit, like Rod said, feeding you the Word of God. I realize that's what I'm doing, is providing a meal through God's Word. And when I was asked to take a slight break from our Hebrew series and preach an overview of Titus, I took the opportunity because I thought, overview, nice. I could skim across the top. There's only three chapters in this book. It'll be nice and easy. It will be a light meal for us. We will leave feeling good. It will be like a tiramisu, nice and fluffy. But as I got to study this book, I realized it's more like a rack of ribs. It's going to sit heavy. It's going to sit heavy in our stomachs. It's probably going to be with us all day, especially your elders, because it's directed directly towards them. The title of the sermon is The Duties of the Slave of God. And the timeless truth we're going to see today is that holding fast to sound doctrine while protecting it and preaching it and reminding God's people of it will produce a godliness in the lives of God's people that brings Him glory. And so, would you pray with me? And we'll get into this book. Our gracious Father, we come before you this morning and we seek to hear from you from your word. We pray that after this sermon is preached, we will know you better. We will know better how to submit to you in a way that brings you glory. Father, I pray that you would allow uh, any inadequacies that I bring to this pulpit to be pushed aside and that your people would hear your word clearly. Father, we are your children. We come to you for all that we need. And right now we need your guidance. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who was Titus? Paul describes him as his true child in a common faith. He says that he is a brother and a fellow uh, worker and a partner in the faith. And these uh, descriptions are fitting because, as best we can tell, Paul and Titus spent 14 years together in ministry before this letter was written. And it's, it's possible that they spent more time together, but that's hard to determine. So Titus was a Greek. It could be speculated that he was a native of Antioch, and he was a trusted companion of Paul. He was trusted enough that Paul would send him to Corinth. This is where he cut his teeth in ministry. And so now Paul has left him on the island of Crete to do ministry with the churches there. And though he has some ministerial notches in his belt, uh, no one is ever beyond a letter of exhortation and a letter of encouragement. And that's what we're going to see today. So our first point today, you'll see three points throughout this sermon, is one, that elders must be appointed to protect sound doctrine. Two, that they must be appointed to preach sound doctrine. And three, they must be appointed to remind God's people of sound doctrine. So, Paul writes this letter to his protege, and here's how it begins. Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen and the knowledge of the truth. So just in case you're wondering, Titus, my mission hasn't changed since we talked last. This is my very uh, purpose of existing. It is for the faith of the chosen. Genuine faith that leads to righteousness. And that faith comes from the knowledge of the truth. 
And so what is this truth? Well, it's the truth of who God is. The truth of who man is. The truth of who Christ is. And the truth of what our response should be to that. And so, from the third word in this letter, doulos, which means slave, Titus can tell this is going to be a weighty letter. So when Paul starts out with, I am one whose life is not my own. I live for the purpose of someone else, a description of a slave. He knows that whatever follows is going to be critical to his ministry in Crete. And we're going to see that these words are critical to our ministry here. So in verse 5, Paul tells Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So we're not going to miss the importance of that statement today. This begs the question, what is so important about elders? And so we'll go ahead and answer that by saying that as we look at this letter, we're going to see that every way in, what, in which Paul wants the churches to be, what they think, what they say, what they do, essentially all of their deeds, it's going to depend upon their being elders in place if they're going to do it in a God-glorifying way. And so, second question, how then? How do elders have so much influence over a congregation? Well, we're going to let Scripture that answer that for us. But first, let's see what kind of man Paul is prescribing here. Uh, let your eyes fall to verse 6. It says, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So what do we see here? We see a man who is faithful. His eyes don't look elsewhere. We see a man who has trained his children to be obedient. Quite possibly one of the most difficult, arduous, long-suffering jobs that parents have in this life. Amen? Yeah, the young parents are saying, yep, amen. And I know it's just three statements here. But here in verse 6, there is enough there to preach an entire sermon on that. But this is an overview. We don't have time to dig down into that today. I'll save that sermon for another day. But you already get the sense that this is an honorable, tireless leader in the home. And he has to be. Because if you cannot lead your home, how then could you lead the body of Christ? In your home, you at least get to spank your children. It's not so much with the body of Christ. You have to use your words. You have to go back to the word and show them what God requires. It's hard work. So continuing on in verse 7, we get insight into his character, the character of this elder. Uh, we see what he's not. It says this, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And then continuing on in verse 8, we see what he is, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And so again, in these two verses, 7 and 8, we have enough for another sermon. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to pick one of these because I feel like I have to highlight it. And it is the quality of being sensible. This sensibility is what allows a person 
to think clearly. Being sensible means that you are curbing your impulses and your desires. You're not thinking with your emotions, but you're thinking with your head in light of the Word of God. And so it is this sensibility that an elder must have. And pay attention to to that word because we're going to see it again in this letter. So the sermon started out with a question, why are elders so important? We answered that. It's because they influence the deeds of the church. And then the second question was, how do they influence the deeds of the church? And we see that in verse 9. Look at that with me. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Holding fast. Do you know what that word means in the Greek? It means to hold fast. Because if you don't, you're going to get tossed. This really, this holding fast, the best imagery I can come up with is the kid who's getting dropped off in the nursery. Uh, the, the kid who hasn't been trained, mind you. Uh, or the kid who's getting dropped off with the babysitter, and they don't want to leave their parents. They're clinging to the leg. I remember doing this, actually. And they're screaming, and they won't let go because in their minds they're thinking, if I let go, I'm going to be separated from my parents forever. I'll never see them again. I might die. And they can't articulate that, but that's what they're feeling. And it's not really a sensible thing to think because the parents are giving them to a trusted person. But it's funny, though, that the child's uh, thoughts and feelings and actions in that situation, as insensible as they are, those are the exact thoughts and feelings and actions an elder needs to to, uh, exemplify in regards to the word. The elder must think, if I let go of this word, I am going to die. And that's actually probably the most sensible thing he could think. So what happens to a man who does let go of the word? We're learning in Hebrews that when you begin to let go, you start to drift. You start to drift from who? Your turn. From God. You start to drift from your father. And what is the end result? Drifting has a destination. I'm not afraid to say it. That end result is hell. And so the one who lets go of his father or from, of the word drifts from the father, and he'll probably never see him again. He's got to hang on like his life depends on it. And so though you've heard it before, it bears repeating. What I'm talking about here is not losing salvation. If you find yourself as evidenced by your deeds, that you are drifting, then you are not anchored to Christ. And you are drifting from the Father, and that means that you have not ever had salvation to begin with. So for the child getting dropped off, again, this desperate cling is not necessary. It's not sensible, but for the man of God, it is essential to cling in this way. Now, Paul is ultimately concerned for God's glory. All that he's doing is for God's glory. And he can read through the flowchart. He understands that God's word leads to godliness, and godliness leads to God's glory. And so if that's true, then the elder must hold fast to the faithful word, 
And look at verse 9. It says this, so that. Hold fast, so that. Well, so that what? So he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. You can't do this without hanging on to the word. So if the elder does not exhort what is good and right and true according to the God's word and refute and deny and silence everything that opposes truth, then the people of God can be, or dare I say, will be led astray. And then when the people of God are led astray, they act in ways that oppose God's precepts, which dishonors him. And so human nature says that some won't like what we've just said. Uh, to some that is offensive because they're connecting the dots and realizing we've just said you can't live a God-glorifying, holy life apart from the church and its elders. But the one who is offended by this is actually the one who's proving out our point in real time. The one who takes offense to this is the anti-authority, do as I please, discern for myself, I don't need you because I have my Bible and the Holy Spirit type. How would you answer someone who asked you, do I need an elder in my life to live in godliness? Well, you know, my answer would be, well, the book of Titus says that you do. And we haven't explained why that is thoroughly yet. We will get there. But what if the question is more aggressive, more extreme, designed to put you on your heels a little bit, to get you to back off? Are you saying that if someone doesn't submit themselves to the teaching of the elders that they're drifting away from God? Do you feel yourself sitting back on your heels when it's asked that way? I do. I mean, there's nuances and there's caveats to every situation, right? But let me encourage you. Though this type of question does necessitate a longer conversation, let me encourage you not to let go of the faithful word. Remember, this person has just proven our point. The faithful word has already been let go of by this person, and they've latched onto something else. They've latched onto some sort of uh, Christian autonomy. Do it myselfism. Me and Jesus. And can I point something out here? Though your justification, yes, is through a personal relationship with Christ, the Bible knows nothing of sanctification apart from the body of Christ. So to answer that last question, are you saying if someone's not submitting themselves to the teaching of elders, if are they drifting away from God? Then yes, my answer has to be yes. So are you saying that they're going to hell? Don't you love it when they do this? Well, we obviously can't determine that from one conversation, and only God knows the heart of a man. But what we can say is this person's attitude towards elders, as described in Scripture, is not God-honoring. And they're pushing back because they don't have elders in their life or they've disregarded the ones they do have who are holding fast to the faithful word, trying to teach them that they need elders in their life so that they won't be led astray as they already are. This person has not humbled themselves to allow anyone to teach them that their desire to be autonomous is just pride. Elders don't even act autonomously. This is why Paul prescribes a plurality of elders. 
Do you really think that one elder can discern all situations correctly on his own? I'll tell you, he cannot. Here at Metro, what I don't see, Rod sees. What Rod doesn't see, Blaine sees. What Blaine doesn't see, Aaron sees. God has it rigged that way. Otherwise, we might boast in our own abilities. We might grow in our pride. We might boast in our wisdom. So here's what I'm saying about the entire line of questioning that we've just gone through. It's very possible that if you're willing to reject the Word of God and what it says about elders' leadership, then you're also maybe willing to reject other sound doctrines as well. So as regards to your salvation, well, the book of Hebrews says that you would have no assurance of salvation. I'll let the Word of God speak there. And so, yes, without the protection of elders on duty, holding fast to the faithful word, people can be led astray. This is why there is such an emphasis in this book, in this letter, on what is being said, what is being taught. Titus needs men who will stand up for knowledge and for truth, and here's why. Look at verse 10. It says... There are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Rebellious men, what are they rebelling against? Rebelling against the Word of God. Empty talkers, talking about something we don't know, probably philosophizing just to try to sound smart. And then there are the deceivers who are in a category of their own because they don't just waste the time of the hearer, they actually change the mind of the hearer. They deceive. They trick through cleverness of speech. They give the appearance of truth on the surface. But if you dig deeper and look at what they're espousing at the root, you will actually see it is rejection of Christ's rule. And so for the person who listens to this deceiver and they're not holding on fast, it's like their fingers are being peeled back one by one and soon enough they find themselves in a situation they're not even holding on at all. And they're drifting further and further from the Father. So Paul tells Titus to appoint elders to stand in the gap. Teach what is faithful and true. Do not let your people be subject to the deceivers. In verse 11, he says, silence them. Not just don't give them an audience. No, he's saying shut their mouth. You'll know you silenced them when they have nothing left to say and your people don't want anything to do with such garbage. These elders Titus is supposed to appoint are not your Mr. Nice Guy, milk toast Christian. The kind of guys that speak softly and get hit with big sticks. The elder must realize that people's souls and God's glory are both on the line and they have to stand up and boldly protect both. And things like this are hard to hear in our generation and in our culture. We live in a culture where truth is relative. Truth is true when I determine it it to be true. We live in a culture that is independent. Don't tell me how to live. And we bring those ways into the church. But God's word is not this way. It is the solid truth upon which every thought, every decision, every action is supposed to be built. The elders have to hold fast and teach it as such. 
So the situation there in Crete was a grim situation. There were deceivers all around whose mission in life was to win people over to their way of thinking. So think about it. If you want to engage in any particular sin, what do you do? You make converts. Every additional person that believes your philosophy on any certain topic is one less person to convict you of your sin. So do you understand? Let's, let's, bring some, let's put some flesh on it here in our situation. Do you understand why there's so much animosity and such a push from the homosexual and transgender community today? If we can get society to follow this way of thinking, I don't have to feel bad about sin. I don't have to repent and follow Christ. How about this? If I can get people to agree that watching church online is worship, then I don't have to feel guilty about not coming to church. Don't think for a second that our situation today is unique. People have been trying to sin and feel justified for it since the dawn of time. And the methods they use are crafty. They've even infiltrated the church. Evidence of this. How is it that so many people under the umbrella of Christianity either accept and or champion or are just indifferent to deviant sexuality, even within the church? How is it that within the church, people have accepted the inverting of God's design for male headship and they've placed women in the pulpits to preach and to teach and to lead congregations? I'll tell you how. Rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, who upset not only whole families, but entire denominations. They know where they want to go, and through the craftiness and cleverness of speech and the twisting of the word, like Rod says, they find the theological bus to take them there. And there's not a man among them who will stand up, hold fast to the word, refute the contradictors, and honor God. And so that is discouraging. I don't like hearing that because it's so prevalent. I need to see it done right. I need some hope. So let's do that. Let's go back 30-some-odd years from when this letter was written. Jesus had just been baptized. And the Spirit of God leads the Son of God into the wilderness to be tested and watch as our Lord holds fast and silences the deceiver. This is Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, then became hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Did you hear the two truths that Satan just stated? One, if you are the Son of God. It was true. And two, command these stones to become bread, which he could do. And so this is the craftiest trick of all, using truth to deceive. And here's the deception. No one could fault Jesus for turning stones into bread. He was famished. He had just fasted for 40 days. I can forget to bring my lunch to work 
and think that I'm going to perish before I get home. I mean, no one would, no one would, would uh, say that he didn't need food. But Jesus can see straight through the deception because he holds tightly to the word. What did he respond with? It says this, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus, because he held fast to the word, was not willing to take for himself that which God did not provide. Jesus was not willing to lust after food. And so you know the assault doesn't stop there. Two more times, Satan tries to tempt him. And in both situations, Jesus holds fast to the word when he replies, it is written. And Jesus refutes and he silences the greatest of deceivers. So church family, do we see the importance of protecting sound doctrine? What you believe about God what you believe about man, what you believe about Christ affects everything you do. Your doctrine affects your deeds. This is why Paul tells Titus in uh, verse 13 to reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Otherwise, like those who are defiled and unbelieving, they will profess to know God, but by their deeds they will deny Him, being detestable, disobedient, worthless, for any good deeds. So this is a strong letter with strong words and hard truths. But it must be because God's glory is on the line here. That was just chapter 1. Chapter 2 doesn't get any easier. Let's take a look at it. Titus is to appoint elders to preach sound doctrine. So at a cursory glance, if you're just reading through this, you may think the audience changes uh, from Titus to the congregation because there's instructions about older men and younger, uh, younger men, older women, younger women, women, slaves, on how they're supposed to act. But we still have to remember this is a letter to Titus. He's still the audience. So in chapter 1, we just saw Titus was charged with charging other elders to preach, teach, and protect sound doctrine. In chapter 2, it ends and begins with these bookends of speak these things. So in contrast to all that's being teached out there, Titus, you speak these things. The things he's referring to are the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Verses 11 uh, through 14 in chapter 2, we see this doctrine that drives deeds. Let's look at it together. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom gave, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is that which places God in the heart and in the mind of man where God should be. He's saying, speak these things about God. God is eternal. He had no beginning and no end. He always has been and will be. 
God is holy. He is pure and perfect. There is no human words that can fully describe His holiness. God is love. His compassion is selfless. God is righteous. He is without error or fault. God is just. He is right in all that He does. He is gracious. He gives what is not earned or deserved. He is merciful. He withholds the punishment that is earned and deserved. He's good in that He desires what is best. And He is long-suffering. He's patient with the sinful, fallen creation. He's saying, speak these things about God and speak these things about man. That because Adam's fall, all of mankind was fallen from birth. His nature is one that seeks only to glorify himself. He doesn't understand, nor does he seek God. And he's not righteous before God. And he can do no good in the eyes of God. Speak these things about man. This is sound doctrine. Speak these things about Christ, the person and work. He is God. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of the universe, which was created for Him and by Him. He's preeminent over all things. Jesus is fully God, fully man, without separation or confusion. He is God incarnate, the perfect image of the invisible God, embodying all the attributes of God. Jesus left His place in glory, humiliated Himself by becoming part of His creation so that judgment might be carried out against Him in order to satisfy the righteous justice of God the Father. And mercy can be extended. He's also the Savior of the world. He came to dwell among His creation in order to reconcile all things back to Himself. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, and ascended into heaven. and is now seated at the right hand of God interceding for his own. Amen? This is true doctrine. Speak these things about man's response. Man is to repent of self-rule and follow Christ alone. Jesus said in John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when the believers on the day of Pentecost realized their helpless estate, they cried out, What shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Again, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So these are the things Paul is instructing Titus and his elders to hold fast to, because it is this gospel that produces good deeds. And when the enemy comes around to try to attempt to to deceive, they run into brick walls. It goes nowhere. So I'm encouraged to see this happen at Metro Bible Church. To see our people holding fast to sound doctrine. So when someone comes through our doors telling stories of sensationalism, how they were driving down the road and the Lord spoke to them and told them to turn right or left on this or that street and they found a guy who needed help and they helped him and they invited him to church. We still haven't seen that guy. What do we think? The first thing I think is that I need to have a conversation with that person about the sufficiency of God's Word. We do not rely on extra-biblical revelation to guide our lives. That is dangerous. When we start attributing things we hear or things we feel to God, we start putting our experience at the same level as Scripture. And eventually, your experience is going to trump Scripture, and that's going to be your highest authority. 
We must interpret Scripture with Scripture, not through our experiences. What about when this message comes through our door? Loving your neighbor means accepting them for who they are. Brick wall. How about loving your neighbor means telling them about Jesus Christ and why they need him? Amen? How about this? We need racial reconciliation among our members at church. Brick wall. How about this? There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. It's like you guys are saying, get out of here with that garbage theology. We're following Christ. So it is the gospel that drives our deeds. So as chapter 2 unfolds in the beginning, you hear some specific good deeds that the people of God should exemplify. Essentially, the gospel is driving your life, and if it is, this is what your life will look like. That's what we see here at the beginning of chapter 2. Let's look at a couple of them. I won't mention them all, but to older men, it says to be temperate, dignified, sensible. Older women, likewise, reverent, teaching what is good, teaching younger women. Younger women, loving husbands and children, sensible, pure, subject to husbands. Young men, sensible, dignified, sound in speech. That is what sound doctrine looks like in the life of a believer. So speak these things. I really want to make sure we understand this because this is the difference between moralism and following Christ. So how is it that these deeds, the ones we just listed here, bring glory to God? I mean, can't anyone follow these precepts? Well, the answer is yes, and it's also no. Anyone can do these things outwardly and temporarily, but eventually they're going to fail because they lack what is needed to maintain this selfless way of life. They also lack what's needed to make the deed godly. The difference here between a deed done by the hand and a deed done with the heart, we're talking about um, <clears throat> what we're talking about here in chapter 2 is a deed that was done by a regenerated heart. It's the product of regeneration. This heart has been set free from bondage to sin. This heart no longer puts itself on the throne, but it yields in all its ways to Christ. This is a way that can be maintained because the heart of this doer trusts God to provide everything they need, much like Jesus did in the wilderness. And not only provide for their physical needs, but provide for their spiritual needs as well. The heart trusts that the provision has already been made by God. The the provision for the debt that sin has earned and the provision uh, for the righteousness that God requires. Jesus is the provision in both of those instances. He paid our debt on the cross, suffering the wrath of God in our stead, and He imparted His righteousness to all who bow the knee to Him. The heart that trusts in this does not need to seek after uh, self-interest because everything they need has already been provided. So they're now free to act in obedience from a pure heart that seeks only God's interests. 
And when you do what you're doing in light of the gospel, God sees it as good. And so once again, our doctrine is driving our deeds. Elders must preach this. So Paul states in verse 15, not only must they preach this, but it must be done with authority, letting no one disregard you. So this is a bold and aggressive mentality that Titus is spurring, uh, Paul is spurring Titus on to have. He says, no, no one disregards you. It's like Paul is able to see into the future of churches filled with preachers who step up on Sunday and preach the word, but they don't pastor afterward. They're not concerned with who is disregarding the word that was preached. He says, that's not going to cut it. Let no one disregard you. No one. It doesn't say, make sure most of them regard your words. It says, no one. And so you can kind of imagine what Titus might be thinking. Well, Paul, what about that guy over there? He's new here. He's obvious, obviously set in his ways. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be more trouble than it's worth to engage that guy on this level. Can't we just let sleeping dogs lie? Paul says, Titus, no one is to disregard the word. Okay? So what does that look like? Well, it looks like when you give instructions, they don't just get to disregard it as one man's opinion on how to live. Like, hey, Titus, I heard you preached a sermon on, on worship last week. Uh, you know, that's good for you guys, but I'm living my, my life the way I am right now, and it's, it's working out for me so far. Titus must reply with, you may think your way is working out for you, but we haven't seen you in worship at three weeks. What has entangled you? It looks like you're denying your, your salvation. You're wrapped up in your worldly desires. Brother, you can't live righteously on your own. That's the level of engagement. And you might be thinking, like I am sometimes, I don't want to get into that conversation. It feels like legalism. I mean, I'm counting the number of times someone comes to church. I mean, wouldn't it be better just to send them a text and say, we've missed you? It seems like we're drawing lines in the sand. It feels a bit strong. And I might agree in some cases. But except in this case, the man is not ignorant. He is in rebellion. He outright rejects the word of God. Titus can't allow this man to disregard God's word. He must engage on this level. Any other approach would be inconsistent with what God's word prescribes. How do we know what God's word prescribes in how to engage an individual? We have it. It tells us. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. But who is Titus dealing with here? Cretans! These are rebellious, unruly people. This is why Paul tells them in chapter 1, reprove them severely. So man, Titus has his work cut out for him. I mean, his job is literally to take people, help them understand every way in which they're living is self-glorifying, and teach them to repent and follow Christ. No one's envious of his job there in Crete. Look back at chapter 1, verse 12. It describes the Cretans as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And you couple that 
with the uh, self-promoting, self-glorifying philosophy that's going on all around them. And so though Titus is an experienced minister, he needs some fortitude. Paul's trying to give him some backbone. And he's doing it in this letter. He says, hold fast, exhort the sound doctrine, refute contradictors, silence empty talkers, reprove severely. Speak these things with, a sport, with authority and do it confidently. Teach your congregation what is fitting for sound doctrine. Why? Because it will produce a people who adorn the doctrine of God and they will be zealous for good deeds. The word of God will not be dishonored and the opponents will be put to shame. All right, take a breath. I'll take a drink. Chapter 3. Appoint elders to remind them of sound doctrine. It says this, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to, every, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. It's like you're saying, Titus, good work. You've gotten in the ring You've contended for the faith. You've fought back the deceivers. You've silenced the empty talkers. And your congregation is doing well because of it. They are actually zealous for good deeds. They're doing what they're doing because of the love of Christ. And you're tired. But it's not time to sit down. You have got to get back in the ring and do it again tomorrow. Because they need reminding. And this is true. How often do we need reminding? I mean, we know these truths, right? How many times this week have we been anxious? I've had plenty of anxiety this week. Anxiety is just distrusting that God will provide. Do you need to be reminded that He will provide you everything to live godly in Christ Jesus? How many times a week have we, this week have we been offended? Being offended is just an expression of how someone has made an assault on our glory. It's your pride in the back of your head complaining. Do we need to be reminded that we have no glory? The only thing good in us is Jesus Christ. How many times this week have we protested pain? Whether it be physical, emotional, or whatever else. The situation doesn't feel good, and I hate that I have to go through it. Do you need to be reminded that we will face various trials in this life and that God is good and sovereign over those trials? I need to be reminded of those things, and I know you do too. Remind them of the doctrine that led them to where they are. Remind them because new deceivers will come. Remind them because they will trend towards fleshly desires without it. Remind them because they are forgetful. And they will forget who they once were. Look at verse 3, chapter 3. For we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Remember, this was you. You weren't always obedient. You weren't always engaging in good deeds. You weren't always peaceable and gentle. If you remember, 
correctly, you were probably a bear to be around. Such were all of us, I'm sure. So don't hate people who are just like who you used to be. Rather, love them with the gospel. Remember what God has done for you. Verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Don't let the good deeds that you're doing now somehow make you think that you earned that salvation. Remember the doctrine of man. You were a miserable wretch deserving death. But by His mercy, you were spared. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You had no righteous deeds prior to regeneration in your heart. Prior to that, you were enslaved to sin, to your lusts, to your pleasures, and you only served yourself. But now that we've been justified by His grace, we are heirs with Christ, we've been saved, and the deeds that we now do are a result of that salvation. And Paul keeps harping on this point. Remind them of this. This is a trustworthy statement, he says in verse 8. And concerning these things, I want you to speak it confidently. These things what the gospel is, and what your life should look like because of the gospel. This is trustworthy. Preach it confidently. Because it's true. And this truth will be the difference between deeds done for self and deeds done for God's glory. He says, these things are good and profitable for men. Paul says, these things are profitable. Nothing else. It's the gospel. There is good that comes from this. There's value. As opposed to everything Paul says is worthless. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strifes and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. In chapter, back in chapter 1, he says, not paying attention to Jewish myths commandments of men who turn away from the truth. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Do you see the difference between what is profitable and what is not is doctrine. On one hand, you have the genealogies and the law and the myths and the commandments of men, which is a true legalism, And on the other hand, you have the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of these doctrines produces deeds, but only one of them leads to what is good and profitable, which is godliness. Godliness is the goal. Sound doctrine is the only road to get there. Which is why Paul tells Titus in verse 10, the very next verse, reject a factious man, after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. Basically, if there's a man in your congregation who's causing division by his teaching, warn him not to do it again. But if he's unwilling to give it up, he must be rejected. 
You are dealing with the unity of the body of Christ here. You don't have the option to play the long game to see if you can get him to come around. He must be stopped. And that's the end of the exhortation here. Drops off like that. It's heavy. But I think we can see what this letter is. It is marching orders. It is the duties of an elder, the slave of God. Preach the word, protect the word, remind God's people of his word. That's what this letter is. So in verse 12, he begins to wrap up this letter. But it's not a general salutation. Notice how it ends. Let's look at verse 12. And when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Who are these guys? Titus recognizes them. Two of them we recognize from Acts and Paul's other epistles. That's uh, Tychicus and Apollos. And these other two, Artemis and Zenos, this is our first time to hear about them, but I assure you, Titus knows them. These are Paul's companions, like Titus is. These are brothers in arms, guys who are on the front lines doing the things that Titus has just received instruction to do. He's saying, Titus, I know this is a high calling. It's a hard job. But look at these guys. They're doing the same work. Be encouraged. They're coming to see you. You're not alone in this, Titus. Look at verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. Saying, we have the same mission, Titus. And Titus gets it. He understands that he's a slave of God too. He knows what he must do. I get it. That's why it's still sitting heavy in my stomach. Rod gets it. Blaine gets it. Aaron gets it. And whoever comes up to this office after us in years to come, they will get it because we will be sure they get it. Because we will know this book like the back of our hands. We're slaves of God. Our duty, to hold fast to the faithful word, to protect it, to preach it, to remind God's people of it, so that we may engage in good deeds and bring God glory. 